Hello, brand new financial year, brand new podcast. This is The Business, and we'll be here every week analysing the economic, business and market-related news over the last seven days. Coming up this week, just when Gordon Brown hoped the green shoots of recovery were finally beginning to sprout, ministers are told there's a £39 billion black hole in the public finances. We'll look ahead to this month's budget and prospect some pretty nasty tax rises. Plus, he's been called a benefits grounder on a massive scale, but Sir Fred Goodwin's still clinging on to that pension package. We'll discuss the latest twist over the compensation for Fred the Shred. And financial markets be damned. We'll talk toofers, bog-offs and analyse why our supermarkets have done so well out of the recession. I'm Aditya Chakraborty and it's all coming up here on The Business from The Guardian. Well, you'll be delighted to hear that this is a pinstripe and briefcase-free zone. So let me introduce your panel, who address accordingly. Dan Roberts is the Guardian's head of business, and apparently there's something called a credit crunch on at the moment. Is that keeping you busy, Dan? Uh, it's keeping us fairly busy, yeah. I, I've determined to cheer up. I've decided that this week is a week for glass half full. That's my motto for the week. Well, Phil, Phil in, Philip Inman is our finance expert, expert on finance both high and low, but I'm guessing mainly low at the moment, Phil. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who don't have any money. More people than those that do. And finally, Heather Stewart is a brain box, the Observer's economics editor. Are you feeling on the money, Heather? I'm just glad to have escaped from the Excel Centre from last week's G20 Summit, to be honest. It's nice to be able to see daylight for a change. Well, thank you all for joining me on this maiden voyage. And it's choppy waters that we're about to enter. Because, as Heather said, Gordon Brown was all smiles last week after securing a trillion dollar aid deal at last week's G20. But now it's back to the grim reality of domestic economics. The budget's just a fortnight away. And the big question is, how will the government account for a public finance black hole of almost £40 billion? Heather, could you tell us a bit more about what the IFS said this week about the public finance black hole? Yes, the black hole they're talking about is the difference between what Alistair Darling was expecting when he last stood before the House of Commons in the autumn pre-budget report and talked about the public finances and what they expect to be happening going forward. Um, And the biggest cause of that is um, the huge collapse in tax revenues from the recession. Uh, The city was was an enormous source of, of corporation tax uh, stamp duty from housing transactions has collapsed, and this has left a, a huge hole in the public finances. What's, what's the headline figure? The, well, it's a thirty-nine billion pound difference between what Darling was suggesting in the autumn and, and what the IFS says is now likely to be the case. They expect public debt to hit eighty percent of GDP, which is an extraordinary figure in the years ahead. Twice what what uh, Brown tried to stick to. And uh, they say if that black hole were to be made up, we would have to increase taxes by £1,250 for every family in the country. Now, we should say that those figures are for 2016. An awful lot can happen between now and 2016. Things could get better. They could conceivably get a lot worse. Absolutely. But Phil, when you see that those sorts of figures in the paper, what do you think ordinary people make them? All those billions and millions and now even trillions? Well, it's hard to fathom. I mean, ordinary people's quite a sweeping kind of uh, concept. I think what you're, what you're certainly finding from businesses, which of course is a, a group of people we talk to quite often, is they're becoming increasingly resentful at newspapers, kind of what they see as um, sort of dragging down the country, talking down the country. Well, it's our fault. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think, and I think they are looking to the media. If you, I think particularly those that I've talked to that um, work across borders, so they're also trading uh, on the continent, they see papers uh, and the media generally talking up, you know, saying we're going to battle through this, being much more positive about their ability. They're as a talking country. their own book, aren't they? 
<laughs> and of course, these are also um, uh, medias that um, missed the downturn, as in they were talking things up in the boom. But I think that um, whether we like it or not, there's going to be some resentment amongst businesses that that's what the attitude that we're taking. Well, those same businesses are now forming an orderly queue outside number 11 because they're all expecting their own particular handouts out of this month's budget, whether it's motor manufacturers or renewable energy firms. Dan, do you see any of those firms coming away with anything in this month's budget? I think they'll all get a bit. I mean, I think it's going to be, it is going to be a spending budget, regardless of of um, Mervyn King's attempts to try and um, hold things in check, uh, with an election looming and the recession still far from bottoming, bottoming out, there is going to be enormous pressure on Darling to sort of, um, to appear to be doing things. I think the real, the question, the difficulty for us is going to be working out the difference between the spin and the substance, which is always a trouble at budget time, but I think doubly so this time around, because they're going to want to look like they're spending a lot of money, but they don't have any. So, so much of it is a confidence trick, in, in essence, you know, and they've got to talk it up and be positive you know and obviously they want us to be <laughs> to be positive on their behalf too but there's a real risk isn't there that after the budget's delivered that the only real tangible benefits from all the government's hundreds of billions will be the banking industry and a lot of ordinary taxpayers and other businesses will feel pretty hard done by well that's only if you separate out the the bankers from the rest of us i mean we all have we all own the banks we all have bank accounts we are the banks you know almost as much as the government we is didn't us. all do securitized debt obligations we didn't but they did it on our behalf and we resent them for it and we might want to lock them up and throw away the key but the fact is that the institutions themselves in, a, in a essence, sort of belong to us, and um, both pra- in practical terms because we own the shares in, in two of the biggest ones, and and because we have a, we all have bank accounts in the rest, you know. So well, and also, if you, the risk of not bailing out the banks was that they would bring the entire economy down with them, they would bring the economy to a halt, which is not true, unfortunately, of any other sector, however worthy it might be. I think that you know the government held its nose, and you know if if you talk to to Alistair Darling about it, he's not enthusiastic about bailing the, out the banks at all. They, they held their nose and did it because. They consequences will be so dire otherwise i think we will see though a change in tone towards industrial policy coming out uh, of government that actually there's a sense as we try and rebalance the economy Mm. and we try and uh, encourage more sustainable businesses whether that's manufacturing whether that's other parts of the service sector Mm. there will be an attempt to to wade in and try and correct some of the imbalances of the last 10 20 years well heather we Mm. came into this recession with gordon brown barack obama pretty much every world leader of substance Mm. talking about a green new deal Mm. where's all of that talk gone well, there was certainly very little detail or substance out of the G20 last week, um, other than an agreement to try and reach a deal at the Copenhagen Climate Summit in December. I think we'll hear a bit more about it at the budget. I suspect there'll be some subsidies which are aimed at directing spending towards greener jobs, but I'm not sure we'll see anything on the scale of what the US is doing, which is actually actively spending money in a Keynesian way to try and create new new green jobs using federal money. I don't know what you think, Dan, but I think it's quite pathetic, isn't it, what we've, what we've done on green stuff you know i mean if we're writing stories about you know more than half our green businesses almost going bust for lack of you know loans or funding you know it just seems to be all talk and totally no substance well, the, the gap between the rhetoric and the action um, from the government on environmental issues has probably never been bigger mm-hmm. and uh, i thought it was remarkable that we saw the cbi of all people come out and accuse the government of not doing enough to help cli- uh, prevent climate change this week and they feel i think caught between a desire from the government to see lots and lots of action but absolutely no clarity on how they're going to go about doing that no no sort of no help for planning permission for wind farms no no clear carbon price no help for nuclear all these things that the business feels it needs and when you've got the cbi 
deny having a pop at the government over the green issues, then something's really got, gone wrong, I think. And finally, what chance of any uh, do you think of there being further moves on a super tax? That's something that was floated in the pre-budget report as well. Heather? It's not impossible. One of the things that the Chancellor has to do at this budget is is not only to, to, to take short-term measures, but to show in the long term how he's going to get the public finances back in order, how he's going to close that black hole. And actually... Raising tax on the biggest earners, maybe to 50p in, in the pound, for example, could be a really populist way of harnessing a bit of the anger that people are feeling at the moment and, you know, showing how he'll raise more money in the future. OK, well, let's park that there. You'll find plenty more comment and analysis on this and the build up to the budget at guardian.co.uk slash business. Now, every nightmare needs a bogeyman. And here in Britain, the embodiment of the banking crisis has been you know who, Sir Fred Goodwin, the former chairman of the Royal Bank of Scotland and his £16 million pension pot. Last week, shareholders at RBS voted overwhelmingly against the Troubled Bank's remuneration report. But it's not been enough to prevent him from trousering, to use a tabloid verb du jour, over £700,000 every year. Dan, what does that vote actually mean? Not a lot. I think it uh, is, is mainly the least that the government could do in terms of recognising that they own this bank and that they don't agree with the remuneration policy. The tragedy, I suppose, is that they don't see any any way of uh, of actually tackling this issue head on. In the US, we've seen changes to the law threatened. We've seen um, in France, the government directly ruling these things out. And in this country, I think the rule of contract law is very important, but we seem to be hiding behind it rather than actually recognising what even the larger shareholder in RBS now views, which is that this was an, uh, a, a bad award. So let's set up our own court of public opinion right here. What would you do with Sir Fred Goodwin's pension? The problem with the banks is that we're not facing reality by fully nationalising them. We're not facing up to the fact that the banking system is bust. And this actually presents a neat way out of this particular pension issue, because if this, was co- if the com- if this company was bust, then the pension would be covered by the Pension Protection Fund, which is a government-run scheme to try and um, give people a sort of a safety net. And it has a limit on how much you can pay out um, for, for pensions. I mean, Phil knows this much more than I do, but... Um, uh, that limit would be far, far below what, uh, what what Fred has got. So I think we get ourselves into this mess because we are trying to nationalise this bank without admitting so it. So what do you want to do? You want to take back the money we've already promised him? Well, I think that if you if you put this bank into a form of public administration, which effectively we have, we just haven't admitted it, then you could therefore claim that this pension fund is now governed by the rules of the Pension Protection Fund. And there is already a system in place for limiting what you can pay out in terms of pensions for companies that have gone bust and can't afford it. Okay, Dan Vladimir Roberts there. Phil, what do you think other businesses and pensioners would make of that kind of move? Well, I think there's a lot, <laughs> there's a great deal of anger out there and um, a lot of people who want revenge. I think that um, I think you've got to go down that road or you've got to say this guy was reckless and we're going to um, look at company law and say that we're going to have him in court and we're going to humiliate him in court and say, OK, we can't get your pension back because for some technical reason we can't follow Dan's So part. you're on his side. Don't you well, think that's really dangerous, though? Don't you think when we yes. start ripping up pensions that we're already paying out to people, that that's a horrendous precedent? Heather, I mean, speak I, up I, for property rights. I, well, I just think, the, I mean, I think the government messed up on this because 
because at an early stage in October, they didn't step in and say, no, we don't want this guy to, to stay around for another couple of months to run the company while we find someone else. He's, he's wrecked this company. We want him out of the door. Instead, you know, Lord Miners, probably Baroness Videra, probably Alistair Darling as well, although they've kept their names well out of it, said, yeah, let's do what we need to do to keep him on. And I think they've made that mistake. And now it's too late. Hang I on think, a second. This know. isn't about property rights because this company would be bust were it not for the government stepping in. Um, Sir Fred has gone from basically a position where he wouldn't have been able to um, uh, get a penny more out of this bank because this bank was basically ceasing to function. Now, uh, I mean, Phil, it's right. The issue is more compli- complicated because there is a separate pension fund which is separated from the bank. But at the end of the day, we are standing behind the banks. Uh, we are deciding which liabilities we choose to recognise for this bank and that which we don't. Um, so the, the idea of property is only dependent on there being more money to pay it out. OK, but if we upend the law for one particular person what do you think the, the rest of business will make of that well, why would we be upending the law i mean you'd be pursuing the law in the in the pension rules of the fund of the royal bank of scotland fund it will say that if you've if you've committed a, a kind of a crime within the company like stolen money from the company then you forfeit your pension well, which is why there. he should have been sacked not not allowed to leave but now that he has been allowed to leave isn't it quite hard to, to revisit that well, if, are you if, saying there's something the government's missed phil Absolutely. If there's a, and this is, and Dan was quite right, and he's saying this is being pursued much more aggressively in America, where they're looking at every avenue to see if they can get people either up in court or or through the rules of their pension fund, try and establish something. And even if they can't um, embark on it with a hundred percent feeling that they're going to get this money back, they are, they're prepared to humiliate these people and say, look, you were part of breaking this company, so you should be up in the dock. Um, and have people throw rotten tomatoes at you. Do, and do we you may not get the money. Here? No, we don't see that here. But do you want to see it here? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You want stocks in the town square. You want these I people don't in there. see how that helps, though, really. Because it, it's cathartic. It's emotional. It's not rational. If I you're going to pursue a rational thing, then, then obviously it doesn't help. There is a very rational argument for it as well, I think, though, which is that we have to carry the people with us through what is going to be a very difficult few years for the economy. We're going to expect people to make sacrifices left, right and centre, whether it's higher taxes or, or, or lower growth or whatever. And if the government wants to carry the popular will through the, th- with it through this process, process it needs to be appearing to be fair and the issue with fred is immensely divisive at a time when actually we need people all feeling like they're pulling together but heather aren't we all getting hung up on the millions that are going into fred goodwin's pension pot whereas there are billions hundreds of billions going into the entire banking system well, I mean, as I said earlier, I, I think it's hard not to be pouring billions into the entire banking hmm. system because I think other, otherwise the risk that is that it falls. And I, don't get me wrong, I don't think this guy deserves a penny. He should have been sacked. But given that he hasn't, I'm not sure that, you know, uh, spending months and, and potentially an awful lot of money on a legal case necessarily gets us anywhere. I think there's a lot of challenges of economic management that I'd rather our politicians were getting on with than, than you know, scapegoating this guy who, who admittedly has, has driven this country, to this um, company to the wall. Well... Here's another question a lot of people are asking, and perhaps you can provide the answer, Dan. Where is Fred Goodwin at the moment? Oh, well, we've tracked him down. We've just fa- found out that he's actually hiding in uh, in Switzerland with his old motor racing pal, Jackie Stewart, which, um, given how much money um, RBS put into motor racing over the years, sponsoring uh, sponsoring Jackie and others, I think he's probably the only person left who owes Fred. So um, that's where he's, he's hiding out. And what chance of getting a message to him? 
Uh, I, I'm sure he's a Guardian reader. I'm sure he gets it fr- air freighted out every day and, and reads every. And column. you've got a particular two word message you want to pass on. <laughs> come, come back, come back. I, want, I thought he, I thought he gave a very um, spirited performance at the Treasury Select Committee the other week, and um, I think actually the more he's a he's a tough guy. He's not. Um, uh, he's quite capable of defending himself, and I'd like to see him do that more often. Mm. He's uh, welcome to make his case in our pages anytime, <laughs> anytime he likes. There we go. An open invitation to Fred Goodwin. Well, this is sure to run and run here on the business and in the interest of balance maybe we'll get someone actually sympathetic to Sir Fred on the panel next week. (laughs) In the meantime if you want to have your say on this post a comment on the blog at guardian.co.uk slash business. In these tough times staying in has definitely become the new going out and while the financial markets may have plummeted one of the sectors to benefit most from our new frugality has been the supermarkets. Tesco, Sainsbury's, Morrison's and all the rest have seen their profits grow in the last nine months. But when is a manager special not so special? Can you tell your toothers from your bog-offs? And have you made the switch to own brands? Well, let's take our business hats off for a moment. Heather, as an economist, why do you think the word free has such an such a immense hold upon the public imagination? Well, there's lots of experiments in economics that show that people don't always behave rationally, and one of uh, we respond differently to different kinds of signals. And and you know, the word free makes everyone feel that they're getting something for nothing, even though deep down we probably accept that what the supermarkets do in these cases is you know slightly up the price that they're going to charge for the one that you're not getting free. I think we you know everyone loves the feeling that that. that they're getting something for nothing and they're likely to respond much more strongly to that than they are to a, a small price cut in something else. So is the wall being pulled over our eyes? Because we end up buying more stuff than we really need yeah. for what? A marginal saving? Yeah, I think, well, I mean... It, <sighs> You know, I think we all sort of know that that's how it works. And, you know, you look at things that are priced at seven ninety nine, and we're far more likely to buy things, you know, than at seven ninety nine than £8, which there's no, obviously no rational reason for, um, because a penny here nor there makes no difference. But people don't always respond uh, entirely rationally to those signals, I think. Now, Phil, when the recession began, there was a lot of talk about trading down and people moving from Waitrose down to Sainsbury's or from Sainsbury's down to Lidl. Do you see much evidence of that? Oh, yeah, I think you do, all over the place. I think it was um, funny, someone came up to me the other day and they said, you know, I just don't feel middle class anymore. <laughs> and uh, and I think it, it kind of spoke volumes, really, because they just felt like they weren't able to go into those shops um, and just go on, you know, websites or whatever and, and browse and all they those sorts of able. things. They weren't able. They weren't able. They didn't feel able to do it because they but just don't have the money in the bank account And it's anymore. also, I think, con- conspicuous consumption, which felt acceptable not so long ago, now is no longer acceptable and I think people feel slightly awkward actually about splashing out on things that they that they wouldn't have thought about not so long ago. Although the one gap in the market is the one that our colleague Larry Ellick keeps talking about which is the lipstick effect which is if you <laughs> if you if you price something that it's a cheap thrill a cheap thr- treat so it might be a chocolate bar or it might be lipstick or anything that gives people a sense that they're able to treat themselves without really committing large amounts of money is actually doing perversely doing quite well in the downturn so mm-hmm. if you're looking for a gap in the market out there it's going to be... But do we see much evidence of trading down outside food? We're seeing it car figures yesterday, for example. We saw um, is that trading um, down, or is that just not buying? Well, there's quite a lot of not buying going on, but the little buying there is is smaller cars, more fuel efficient cars, cheaper to run cars, and second hand yeah. cars, and second hand cars, oh, which is yeah. obviously still holding up, you know, by comparison with new cars. One of the things that our supermarkets tried to get into quite heavily over the last decade was what what they call non-food items, televisions, electronics, all the rest of it. Does the recession put an end to all of that, Phil? 
No, I don't think it does. I mean, I think that, you know, we, we're likely to see, um, and I think we already are seeing a huge drop off in, uh, you know, flat screen telly buying because, you know, a lot of the people who wanted a flat screen telly went out, got the debt, you know, got the credit and then bought one. Um, and uh, and we're going to see that slow down just as we're going to see everything else on those sort of consumer durable slow down. I think that when the last, if I'm right in thinking the last supermarket figures, they did report slowdowns in their non-food items mm. much more than the food items. Um, but it doesn't put an end to that story. I think that, you know, those kinds of supermarkets have a huge, huge behemoths on the high street and they, they're going to bide their time and they'll be back, you know, kicking ass on the high street um, in a year's time. But Dan, what happens when a big middle class name like Marks and Spencer's decides it's going to get, get into the value game and it's going to offer you a meal for two for a tenner? What happens to the rest of the high street then? I think it's all relative, isn't it? I mean, you see um, Waitrose issuing a, a value range and M&S doing eat in for £10 and all the rest of it. These aren't, they're very cleverly done because they're not tarnishing those brands, I think. I mean, uh, in, the, in the pecking order of it, and we all, you know, hate to think that we think like this, but actually we do. You know, a, 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 a Waitrose value range is probably like a, a little luxury range, you know. So as long as they, as long as they sort you of... snob. <laughs> as long as they, um, uh, uh, as long as they manage their, 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 their brand and they don't appear to be sort of desperately piling them high and flogging them cheap at M&S, I think they'll, they'll cope. Well, if you look at Iceland, you know, you can't buy anything for more than a pound in Iceland now. You know, it's turned itself into a pound shop. You know, I went in to buy a pizza. I'm looking at these pound pizzas. I'm thinking they must be rubbish. You know, why would I want to buy this pizza? There must be a more expensive one around so I can buy it and it'd be better for me. So you're still middle class, clearly. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the definition. And then there was a stone-baked pizza for £1.50. You went for that. And I went for that, you know. But £1.50 is still half the price of a a Sainsbury's pizza. All I can say is I'm coming for dinner around your house. (laughs) Okay. well, I hope that's whetted your appetite. If you want to give us your feedback on this or any of our other topics, post your comments on our blog at guardian.co.uk slash business. And if you're new to our podcast here at The Guardian, well, where have you been? You'll find plenty more of them at guardian.co.uk slash audio. It only remains for me to thank the panel, Dan Roberts, Philip Inman and Heather Stewart. The programme was produced by Ben Green. I'm Adit Chakraborty and that was The Business. <laughs>